In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time, and an era comes to an end. I am ceasing my activities in the post of President of the USSR. The tricolor banner of the Russian Republic now flies over the Kremlin. And from the White House, President Bush salutes the man who presided over the end of the Soviet Union. His legacy guarantees him an honored place in history and provides a solid basis for the United States to work in equally constructive ways with his successors. It's December 26, 1991. For the first time since the Bolsheviks officially took power, the hammer and sickle no longer flies over Moscow. Instead, there is a tricolor flag representing Russia in its place. Mikhail Gorbachev has just announced his resignation and officially ended the Soviet Union. It has been just over two years since the Berlin Wall came down, and what was possible, then inevitable, has finally happened. The Cold War is over. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. Welcome to episode 10, the final episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and like I said, this is it the end of an era in world history and the end of this miniseries. This episode is going to feature events that happened in December of 1991 with an in-depth look at the official end of the Soviet Union and the way it was covered in the news, as well as a look at my two favorite Cold War films. Plus, I'll have some final words to close out this podcast miniseries. So let's get started, shall we? As always, and for one last time, I will run down the events of 30 years ago. Now, this time it's all from December of 1991. Starting with, on December 1st, Ukraine votes overwhelmingly for independence from the Soviet Union in a referendum. On December 8th, in the Bielovice Forest, Nature Reserve in Belarus, the leaders of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine sign an agreement officially ending the Soviet Union and establishing the Commonwealth of Independent States, or CIS, in its place. This doesn't one-for-one replace the USSR, as it only has nine members that were former Soviet republics, along with one associate state and two observer states. Instead, it's more akin to the European Union, which is a decentralized cooperative rather than one large state. On December 11th, Croatian forces kill 18 Serbs and one Hungarian in the village of Poland Dvor, Croatia. 
On December 12th, Ukraine becomes the first post-Soviet republic to decriminalize homosexuality. On December 21st, the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, the NACC, meets for the first time. On December 22nd, armed opposition groups launch a military coup against President of Georgia, Zevyad Gamshak Hrudia. This coup will last about two weeks, and it will lead to a civil war that will last until 1993. The factors causing it are many, including the turmoil in the USSR, as well as a number of other ethnic conflicts within the country. A faction of the military broke off and initiated the coup in response to authoritarian measures that were taken by the president, and this would eventually lead to that president's exile and, like I said, to a civil war that would last about two years. On December 24th, Russian President Boris Yeltsin sends a letter to the United Nations Secretary General Javier Perez de Chuelar stating that Russia should be a successor to the collapsing Soviet Union within the UN. On December 25th, Mikhail Gorbachev officially resigned from the Soviet Union as president, from which most republics have already seceded, anticipating dissolving the 69-year-old state. The Russian SSR, Soviet uh, Republic, officially renames itself the Russian Federation. And then finally, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, on December 26, 1991, the Supreme Soviet meets for the last time, formally dissolving the Soviet Union and adjourning, ending the Cold War. All remaining Soviet institutions will eventually cease operations on December 31st. Now, although I was 14 at the time and therefore should have had a pretty vivid recollection of this happening, I will admit that my memory is actually a bit fuzzy. Maybe because the lowering of the flag was not as dramatic as the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Maybe because there was no action movie moment here. Or maybe it was because I was on break from school and Christmas had been the day before, so I wasn't really paying attention to anything. You know the answer to that. I do, though, remember that my dad bought Newsday that morning, because he rarely, if ever, bought the paper. Okay, well, he bought the paper sometimes, usually if he went to the daily or something. He just didn't subscribe to it. Anyway, I remember seeing the headlines as well as a small feature in Kids Day. That was the kids section of the newspaper that was like right next to the comics. And I always read the comics whenever we got the paper, of course. So when I went to look for information on this month in 1991, it was, well, I hate to say anticlimactic because that implies that history is always action and governments always change because of revolution. Now, sometimes history is just made through meetings and paperwork. Um, Okay, very often history is actually made through meetings and paperwork. And that's exactly what happened here. The Soviet government, which was reeling from the revolutions in the Eastern Bloc and also within its various republics, decides that the end of the USSR is inevitable. So they make changes to avoid some of the bloodier consequences, especially after seeing what happened with the August coup and also what was going on in, well, like Yugoslavia. The question that I had then was, how was it covered? Well, thankfully, I teach in a high school. And our high school library has access to the ProQuest database, which has access to decades of articles from newspapers all over the world. Now, it would have been cool if my public library still had the old school New York Times on microfilm that I could, you know, reel into the big machine and print out a facsimile. And uh, I'm a library nerd. I I used to go to the library just to look up crap on the New York Times, the old New York Times issues, because I was just interested in it. Anyway, that aside... 
those days are long behind us. And as much as I love them, online databases are actually really fun to research anyway, because again, you can look up stuff that was in the moment and they're way more helpful because it's easier to search them instead of scrolling through page after page after page of, of New York Times on microfilm. So I did get to see how it was covered by the American press at the time, specifically the New York Times and a little bit of CNN. The Times obviously devoted much of the day's coverage to the end of the Soviet Union, and it reported that Gorbachev gave a, quote, brief, leanly worded television address, wherein he, quote, made no attempt to mask his bitter regret and concern at being forced from office. We are living in a new world, he said, and an end has been put to the Cold War and to the arms race, as well as to the mad militarization of the country, which has crippled our economy, public attitudes, and morals. The article also notes that the Soviet nuclear codes were turned over to Boris Yeltsin, who echoed Gorbachev's statement that the threat of nuclear war was ostensibly finished. Gorbachev's role in the end of the Cold War and setting the wheels in motion for the end of the USSR is also highlighted, as was his concern for the Soviet citizens. He said, I am concerned about the fact that the people in this country are ceasing to become citizens of a great power, and the consequences may be very difficult for us all to deal with. And, you know, and it is important to note that he was opposed to the creation of the Commonwealth of Independent States. His view was that the Soviet Union should stay together, but simply just evolve into a more democratic country, the one that he was seeing it starting to become. Now, there is definitely a selfish reason for this. After all, the end of the Soviet Union meant that Gorbachev would be out of a job. But as he told CNN, he saw cooperation between the newly formed countries as a way to get themselves out of the economic crisis that the Soviet Union found itself mired in at the time. The war in Afghanistan, among several other factors, one of which was a global recession at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, had left the country in pretty terrible economic shape. That's why he developed the economic reform to begin with. The Times also ran an obituary for the Soviet Union of sorts. This was written by Serge Schmemann, wherein he leads with the Soviet state, marked throughout its brief but tumultuous history by great achievement and terrible suffering, died today after a long and painful decline. It was 74 years old. Conceived in utopian promise and born in the upheavals of the Great October Revolution of 1917, the Union heaved its last in the dreary darkness of late December of 1991, stripped of ideology, bankrupt and hungry, but awe-inspiring of its fall. He also notes the lack of ceremony, just the lowering of a flag and a raising of another, and that the public reaction was subdued. With Soviet officials, people, and pundits appreciative of Gorbachev's ability to bring about reform and democratic freedoms, but also aware that he could not fully fix the rather dismal economy, and that ultimately sealed his own fate. Then Schmemann's obituary gets very critical, almost snarky, even though he notes the USSR's accomplishments. He says, Measured against its own ambitions, the USSR died a monumental failure. It had promised no less than the creation of a, quote, Soviet new man imbued with the selfless devotion to the common good, and it ended up all but crushing the initiative and spirit of the people, making many devoted only to vodka. It had proclaimed a new humanitarian ideology and in its name butchered 10 million of its own. It envisioned a planned economy in which nothing was left to chance, and it created an elephantine bureaucracy that finally smothered the economy. 
promising peace and freedom, it created the world's most militarized and ruthless police state. You see the juxtaposition and the irony in all of what he is saying. It's the irony of the cause of the Soviet Union in general. He goes on to say, promising a people's culture, it created an anti-culture in which mediocrity was glorified and talent was ruthlessly persecuted. An entire department of the KGB existed to wrestle with art, trying first to co-opt any rising talent to service of the state, and if that failed, to muzzle or exile it. The roll call of repressed or exiled artists is a stunning indictment. Mendelstam, Malevich, Pasternak, Solzhenitsyn, Rostropovich, Brodsky, and so many more. In the end, promising a new life, it created an unspeakably bleak society, polluted, chronically short of everything, stripped of initiative and spirituality. While the bulk of the nation stood in line or guzzled rot-gut vodka, the communist elite raised corruption to new heights. The likes of Leonid I. Brezhnev and his cronies pinned endless medals on one another and surrounded themselves with the peasants' notion of luxury. Grandiose candelabras, massive cars, vast hunting estates, armies of sycophants, secret hospitals filled with the latest Western technology. And yet the Soviet Union was also an indispensable superpower, a state and a people that achieved epic feats in science, warfare, even culture. Perhaps this was all achieved despite communism or not because of it. Yet by some combination of force and inspiration, the system begun by Lenin and carried out by Stalin unleashed a potent national energy that made possible the rapid industrialization of the 1930s, the defeat of Nazi Germany in the 1940s, the launching of the first Sputnik in the 1950s, the creation of a nuclear arsenal in the 1960s and 1970s. He does his best to explain both Soviet history and the Russian spirit going back to the Tsars, while also noting that the people of the country had a tenuous relationship with the West. And what of those people? An Associated Press story from December 27, 1991, features comments from several citizens, none of whom were dancing in the streets or anything. In fact, some were regretful, such as Dmitry Potopenko. I regret that this day has come, said the 31-year-old aeronautical engineer visiting Red Square. I regret it for this country and its people. I think it is absolutely tragic that a large period of the history of our country has come to nothing. Now, others were apathetic. So what, sneered Alia Kitskaya, a 35-year-old nurse, when asked for what she thought about the red, white, and blue Russian flag fluttering for the first morning in seven decades from the highest Kremlin dome. A 27-year-old factory worker who gave his name as Yuri merely shrugged, doubting that anything had really changed. My point of view, he said, is that democracy is good, but sausages are better. This is interesting, because the main image that we often have of the Soviet people, especially if you follow the propaganda of the latter half of the Cold War, is that they were an oppressed people, and were just waiting for the chimes of freedom to ring. But like I said, that's the propaganda of American exceptionalism, and this reality makes a lot more sense. In fact, there were probably just as many Americans who were apathetic to the Soviet collapse as there were Soviets. When you think about it, if you had spent your entire life, and probably your entire family had existed for a couple of generations, within a particular political and economic system, you might not be rejoicing in its collapse, even though said collapse possibly presents a better life. Yes, I realize that being American makes me biased toward our democratic ideals and freedoms that are protected by the Constitution. But 30 years ago, as well as now, I look at the collapse of the Soviet Union as good, as a hopeful moment that promised a better world. At the same time, though, I know that there were probably more than a few Soviet citizens who looked at the Russian flag going up over Red Square and 
shrugged with the thought that it was just a new coat of paint on a house that was still in need of serious repair. Whether it was Gorbachev on December 26th or Yeltsin on December 27th, they weren't any closer to not having to stand in a breadline or feeling economically secure. So really, what was the big deal? I guess it's the difference between Muscovites at the time and Berliners. The wall coming down in 1989 signaled the end of an occupation, and the fall of the Soviet-backed regimes in the Eastern Bloc brought an end to similar oppressive occupations. But Russia had been the center of that world, the place where Lenin started the revolution, so restraint or indifference is the reaction. Plus, the uncertainty of it must have made people apprehensive. What was the plan going forward? What's to say that another oppressive regime wouldn't rise up where the Soviet state once stood? The U.S. did send an enormous amount of aid to Russia and the former Soviet Union in the 90s, which certainly helped those new nations. Furthermore, the privatization of the oil industry brought about significant economic growth. But that also brought with it oligarchy. The rise of leaders like Vladimir Putin and others who were in former Soviet republics and are more dictatorial than democratic. Putin himself has displayed a number of characteristics of dictators we were fighting throughout the 20th century. Now, again, I have to acknowledge my bias as an American here, but I can't say I hold a favorable opinion of this guy, especially his military occupation of parts of Ukraine, the assassination and imprisonment of political dissidents, massive human rights violations, anti-LGBTQIA plus policies, and his efforts to disrupt other nations' elections, including those of our own. Funny enough, that actually provides a good segue into the pop culture segment of this episode and the first of the two movies that I'm going to be looking at. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break. I'm going to put my thoughts on Mr. Putin and, uh, and current state of Russia the Soviet, and the former Soviet Union on hold. And I'm going to rewind us back to the 1960s one last time. And I will do that right after this. Stick around. I was a liar. I'm not. People think you are good, but you are bad and hard-hearted. I'll let everyone know what you have done. I am a free human being with an independent will which I now exert to leave you. To marry you would kill me. I'm a badass woman. What's wrong with that? Can't hold me back. Yeah, I'm a badass woman. Just me. Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast. Join me, Stella, as I look at the legacy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. TV, film, radio, theater, sci-fi, er erotica? Pun intended. Does Jane Eyre transcend culture, time, place, and galaxy? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can't ignore, you can't ignore no more. I'm a badass woman.
Over the course of the 10 episodes of this miniseries, I've taken a look at several different media and genres of Cold War entertainment, and I have more or less worked my way through the latter half of the 20th century. Last episode, I took a look at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, and the shift in attitude toward the Russians really takes us to the end of the Cold War, because as you move through the 90s, there's not much international intrigue in action movies that has to deal with Russian spies or the threat of nuclear war. Even Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is centered around a preventing a nuclear apocalypse, is more about the way that our own ambitions and technology will destroy us. And GoldenEye is a decidedly post-Cold War Bond film. So what I decided to do in this final episode is talk briefly about what are my two favorite Cold War movies. They're both from the 1960s and deal with the, directly with the politics of the day, but in two completely different ways. The first is a taut political thriller directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Leigh, and Angela Lansbury. The Manchurian Candidate. Raymond Shaw, please. This is he. Raymond, why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire? Released in 1962 and nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Film Editing and Best Supporting Actress for Angela Lansbury, The Manchurian Candidate centers around Major Ben Marco, played by Frank Sinatra, and Sergeant Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, who are in the same unit in Korea. When Shaw returns home from the war, he is awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor because he saved his fellow soldiers' lives in combat. Only this is not true at all. Shaw, Marco, and the rest of the unit were captured by the North Koreans and were put through psychological conditioning before they were released. Shaw's conditioning is the most severe, and he has turned into a mindless drone for his communist masters. We see this when he is asked to play a game of solitaire, and once he turns over the Queen of Diamonds, he then follows whatever orders he is given. Shaw is not a pleasant person. 
and it, he wasn't very well liked by his unit, although to a man they all claim that he is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And he is a bit of a miserable loner, especially considering that he has an overbearing, controlling mother, who's played by Lansbury, who's married to a U.S. senator that's basically a Joe McCarthy type of character. That is, he's on a communist witch hunt, and he's positioning himself to get the vice presidential nomination at the upcoming party convention. Marco begins investigating Shaw, especially because he's have been having nightmares about his captivity in the war and the conditioning that happened, even though the communists did their best to shield their knowledge of said conditioning. As he investigates, Shaw is activated to kill his boss, who is a liberal newspaper magnate, as a way to test that conditioning, and then he rekindles a romance with his old girlfriend. Well, except that he eventually kills her and her father, who is a liberal senator, at the request of his handler as a dress rehearsal for what will be his ultimate deed, that is, killing the presidential candidate during his acceptance speech so that his stepfather can get the nomination and gain almost totalitarian power because of fear of what might happen if he doesn't act with a rather iron fist toward things. But Marco realizes how Shaw's been conditioned and undoes it before Shaw can get his orders from his communist handler, who is his own mother whose virulent anti-communism was a cover. At the convention in Madison Square Garden, Shaw arrives with a high-powered rifle and prepares to shoot the presidential candidate. Marco rushes around the arena in pursuit, but is too late, as Shaw kills his mother and his stepfather and then shoots himself in front of Marco while wearing his Congressional Medal of Honor. He has stopped that communist threat, but it's come at a great cost. I first saw this film in college. In fact, both of these movies were assigned to me in the same class. It was a class called Cold War Politics. Easily one of my favorite political science classes in my four years at Loyola. And this was a pleasant surprise of a movie, especially because I didn't expect Frank Sinatra to be as compelling of an actor as he is here. You know, I know he won an Oscar for From Here to Eternity, but I always associate him with like Ocean's Eleven and the more annoying contingent of his fans from New Jersey who have an odd fetish for Rat Pack LARPing. Anyway, when I first watched it, I recognized John Frankenheimer's name, and having been a fan of both action and spy films, I was immediately intrigued by the film's concept. You know, a sleeper agent in the form of a war hero? It's a really good one. Plus, having him be someone with a messed up family dynamic that includes a McCarthy-like stepfather, uh, that's a great layer to the story, especially considering the twist that the film takes in its climax. It's like George Axelrod, who wrote the screenplay based on Richard Condon's 1959 novel, knew exactly which of the more messed up parts of the 1950s to hit upon. And this did come out at a peculiar time. Kennedy was in office in 1962, and the United States was still in the midst of a boom in a new golden age. The Soviet thread still existed, but we were still a few months away from the Cuba Missile Crisis. We were riding the highs of a youthful president and a commitment to winning the space race. The Manchurian candidate reads almost like, well, it's not a satire of the 1950s, and it's not exactly a repudiation of the 1950s, but it definitely is showing its audience where we were and might even be criticizing what we were like. The scenes of Shaw being conditioned are masterfully edited. 
happens. We see the soldiers in the unit attending what looks like a garden party because that's the memory that was implanted. Instead, they're in a theater and they're being shown to a bevy of global communists who basically represent the giant communist threat that loomed over America at the time. Although I have to note, by 1962, this was not as true as the public was often led to believe. Uh, the Soviet Union and China were in the middle of what would come to be known as the Sino-Soviet split. And McCarthy's paranoia was an embarrassment that we were making up for. But we were also very cognizant of a supposed communist threat when it came to our foreign policy. It's about this time that Kennedy starts sending more advisors into Vietnam, eventually resulting in U.S. troop presence under the Johnson administration and what would become the United States' involvement in Southeast Asia through the latter part of the decade, ending in 1973. Plus, about a year after this film released, was released in theaters, Kennedy himself was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald in a manner slightly similar to the way Raymond Shaw carries out the assassination in this film. Yes, I know that Oliver Stone and a number of other people tell me otherwise, but there is still the imagery, you know, second shooter or no, there's still the imagery of Lee Harvey Oswald in his Texas school book depository, and it's very similar to Raymond Shaw in the rafters of Madison Square Garden. And that can't be denied, especially since it actually led to an urban legend about the movie, saying that it was pulled from distribution as a result of the Kennedy assassination because of that scene. The truth is, the movie had simply run its course in theaters by November of 1963, and it hadn't made its way to television yet. I mean, this is the early 60s, which is pre-video and pre-streaming. I will note that I really didn't mention much about Janet Lee. She's in the film as like a love interest for Sinatra's character, but even she has mentioned that she couldn't exactly figure out why she's in there. She's kind of just dropped in, um, and she's she's great. Janet Lee was an amazing actress, and she she's absolutely great. Uh, in the scenes. This is, one of, this is the, one of three movies I've seen her and it's the only one in which she doesn't die. So there's that. But otherwise, it's a really, really tight piece with great performances and um, an outstanding thriller of a film. Even if you don't know the historical context and how prescient it is about certain events that would happen in 63. But the next movie you kind of have to have some sort of background knowledge about the Cold War because it is a straight-up satire, and it's my all-time favorite Cold War film. It's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I shouldn't tell you this, man, Drake, but you're a good officer and you have a right to know. It looks like we're in a shooting war. Oh, hell. All the Russians involved, sir. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Ruskies. I don't like the look of this, Fred. All right, tell you what you better do, old buddy. I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, that's right, sir. You are the only person authorized to do so. And although I uh, hate to judge before all the facts are in, it's beginning to look like uh, General Ripper exceeded his authority. I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Huh. Missile still deflecting. Range one mile. Start lever to cut off. Thank <laughs> you. 
that plane really got a chance of getting through? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp, he can barrel that baby in so low. I mean, <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight, you. A big plane, like a 52. Vroom! It's jet exhaust, frying chickens in the barnyard. Dr. Strange Love. Or, how I learned to stop worrying and... Love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove was released in 1964, and it's a black comedy about a nuclear conflict between the United States and Soviet Union. In case you're not familiar with the film, the plot centers around an Air Force general named Jack T. Ripper going rogue and ordering a nuclear strike inside the Soviet Union. He then seals up his base, and over the course of the film, we intercut between him and his executive officer, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, who is played by Peter Sellers. The war room at the Pentagon where General Buck Turgidson, George C. Scott, is briefing the President of the United States, who's also played by Peter Sellers, and the bomber that's captained by Major T.J. King Kong, who's played by Slim Pickens. That bomber has received its orders and it's on its run while the briefing goes on in the war room, and the effort to get Ripper to send the stand-down order is close to failing, especially after Ripper locks himself in a bathroom and dies by suicide. Further complicating things is that after speaking with the Soviet premier and the ambassador, the president and the joint chiefs are able to confirm that the Soviets have a doomsday device that will automatically set off enough nuclear bombs to blanket the entire planet with a radiation and render Earth uninhabitable for around the next century. Mandrake manages to get the stand-down codes to Washington, and it's relayed to the bomber squads that are already in the air. However, Kong's bomber has been damaged by Soviet anti-aircraft and is Communications have been knocked out, so they never receive the orders and they go ahead with their mission. So they drop the bomb and the Doomsday device is set off. And that is the plot here. And I know I'm not supposed to assume things, but I am assuming that a number of people who listen to the show are familiar with Dr. Strangelove and therefore looking at me wondering why I left so much out, because there's a lot more to that. Especially since I said it's my favorite film for the Cold War. The thing is, it's kind of a hard film to summarize, or at least get across what makes it so good, because it it's not the plot of the movie that makes the movie good, it's the performances in the movie. It rests on all of those performances. Now, this was the third Kubrick movie I'd seen in full. Uh, the other two were 2001 and A Clockwork Orange. I'd seen, when I saw Dr. Strange for the first time, I had seen bits and pieces of Full Metal Jack and The Shining, which I've since watched in full more than once. And 2001, A Space Odyssey, remains my favorite of uh, Kubrick's films. But I would say that Dr. Strangelove is tied for second with Paths of Glory. I love Paths of Glory. It's such a great movie. Anyway, Kubrick was known for being meticulous to an almost insane and toxic degree with his films. But when you watch his movies to see how they are crafted, you understand why they are essentially a masterclass in filmmaking. While I did watch this for a Cold War politics class back in college, I do remember it being brought up in my intro to film class when it was time to examine certain shots or types of shots. For instance, the from below shots of General Jack T. Ripper sitting at his desk. I remember those being shown as examples of that camera angle making someone look imposing or powerful. The sets also look meticulously crafted. 
The war room with the big board, for instance, is set up as a perfect example of military dick swinging. The B-52 seems as claustrophobic as a plane like that might, even though, ironically, the B-52 is an enormous aircraft. In fact, these two sets have a lot of heavy lifting to do while also supporting the actor's performances. And everything in Dr. Strangelove is over the top, but without tipping over into like Mel Brooks or Monty Python. The world of the film is very much a real world that allows performances to stand out. Kubrick had a way of getting exactly what he needed out of everyone here, including George C. Scott, who is not exactly an over-the-top performer. In fact, well, from what I've read, Kubrick and Scott did not get along. Scott didn't want to give this over-the-top exaggerated performance, so what Kubrick did was tell him that uh, he was going to do a rehearsal take, and he wanted to, him to do it over the top, um, and then he would do the, quote, actual take. And Kubrick was known for having many takes in his films. Um, infamously, Shelley Duvall on The Shining can tell you exactly a story about that. But um, what he did was he rolled camera, he rolled film when – Scott was doing these supposed rehearsal shots, so he got the over-the-top performance that he wanted. Kubrick managed to garner the irascible actor's respect as well by playing and beating him at chess quite often. Scott really liked to play chess, and George C. Scott is perfect as Turgidson. Now, he, he'd go on to play Patton. He'd win an Oscar for Patton in the early 1970s, but here, he's this great parody of a general whose job is, when you think about it, really cushy, He's like a desk general who just kind of who does strategery and, and just kind of, you know, takes advantage of the perks of his job, by which I mean he sleeps with his secretaries. I mean, his secretary even calls him in the middle of the war room, like, you know, kind of, you know, hey, where have you been and everything. It's 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 a it's it's again, it's like one of those funny moments where it's like you're getting a call from your from your from your girlfriend in the middle of this like really horrific meeting that you're having about whether or not the world is gonna end. And really, uh, when I think about it, Dr. Strangelove is essentially an extended penis joke, pun intended. Turgidson's name kind of gives that away, but then you have Jack T. Ripper as an example of an alpha male and alpha male aggression. He's a cigar-chomping, order-barking parody of a general who has gotten so paranoid, he starts spouting off about how fluoride in the water is, like, destroying our essential fluids or something. It's 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 nuts, and he's deranged, and he's going to press that button. In kind of in the same way his namesake released his male aggression by committing unspeakable acts of murder. And rounding out the male stereotype parody characters, you have Major Kong. He's the B-52 commander, and he's this caricaturish cowboy. Although, from what I've read, Slim Pickens actually... That was his actual personality, like off. It wasn't method or anything. He was, he was like a total cowboy. Like he was a Western actor for, for years and years and years and played like a Western character actor. So this was just kind of like, he just, that's how he, he acted. And, and he gets off the film's ultimate penis joke. He, he has to, um, they are going to release the H bomb and it, the, the, the doors open, but the, they can't get the doors open. The release going because the, the, mechanism's been damaged, so he manually goes down to the to the Bombay doors, rips it open like Han trying to fix the Millennium Falcon type of thing, and he fixes it and everything opens, and he's sitting, he's straddling this giant hydrogen bomb, 
and it releases and he rides it to ground zero, whooping and hollering his hat in the air. I mean, <laughs> you don't get you don't get a bigger penis joke than that. Although then it results in a bigger display of Soviet girth because it sets off the doomsday device. So all the bombs go off. Justice Turgidson, by the way, is making a case about not having a mine shaft gap, the context of which is a repopulation plan suggested by the movie's titular character, uh, which, by the way, Freud would have just a field day with all of this uh, before I get to that. Just, I mean, think of thinking about it and just thinking about all the penis jokes in that whole thing. I'm just like, yeah, um, that that's a that's a great great therapy session with with Doctor Freud. Anyway, we have a title character, Dr. Strangelove, as an actual character in the movie. And I didn't mention him in the synopsis, but um, I, I will mention him here. So he's, he's one of Peter Sellers' three characters in the film. He is a wheelchair-bound ex-Nazi scientist, a character that's clearly based on, like, Werner von Braun. Uh, and he's got an exaggerated German accent and a right hand with a mind of its own. And this idea he has, he's like, let's put a few hundred thousand people in mine shafts. We can grow plants via greenhouses, that sort of thing, because we can then we can wait out the radiation in a couple of generations. We can come back and repopulate the earth. It's it's very typical disaster movie survival plan. In fact, like it's kind of like what actually happens in Logan's Run, um, you know, where they basically build the mall or or the. Disney's Contemporary Resort Hotel, um, and then because the the radiation from the outside world has destroyed things, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, but the the cho- we have to choose the best specimens. Part of it is like right out of the Nazi eugenics playbook. Um, and in case uh, you haven't seen the movie, there's a running gag of of his right arm with his mind of its own, and at least once or twice he tries to heil Hitler. Uh, and he literally has to like smack it down and suppress it. And it's hard not to just fall out of your chair laughing. Um, the physical comedy of Peter Sellers' as Dr. Strangelove is matched, I think, only by like Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein, to be completely honest with you. Um, the, the, Heil, the Heil Hitler attempt and stuff like that reminds me of like, you know, where Wilder's face is pressed between the fireplace and the wall. He's like, put the candle back. Just so funny. And then Sellers also has the last line of the film is as Dr. Strazel where he starts getting up and talking and then he goes Sir, I have a plan Because Peter Sellers which is an actor that I don't know if generations beyond me know as well as like my generation did because of the way our parents knew him because he was he was an actor of that particular generation. He's one of the all-time comedic greats. And, you know, I had first seen him in like one of the Pink Panther movies because they used to run those on TV all the time. But I think this is my favorite Peter Sellers film and my favorite favorite one of his performances. Strange Love is a hilarious character. Uh, Lionel Mandrake is this straight man to Ripper, um, the the uppity RAF captain who absorbs Ripper's madness and he stiff upper lips his way to almost saving the day. There's almost like an Alfred Pennyworth aspect to the guy. Uh, and there's a funny bit where he's trying to get the signal off the base and he has to use a payphone. And he's arguing, he's trying to call collect, he's trying to break through. It's uh, and he's got a he's got a American general because they've attacked the base 
to try to get, you know, Ripper and they've succeeded and the general has to shoot a Coke machine to get changed. So you can call it's again, it's, it's like this weird theater of the absurd. And then the president is kind of only sort of in charge. He he's, he's like, uh, he's almost like this, like, what the heck is going on and why wasn't I notified? Sort of look on his face the entire time. And and the conversation he has with the Russian premier is just absolutely hilarious. One of the best moments in the entire film. Hello? Uh, hello, Di hello, Dimitri. Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. <laughs> now then, Dimitri, you know how We've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And... Uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Plus, he does have the best line of the film. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. So, yeah, Dr. Strangelove... I find it hilarious, and I have to say it. I'm try not trying to sound pretentious or, or mansplaining here or anything like that. It just, it is a film that you really truly get if you got that context of what it is satirizing. Granted, that's true of most satire. I teach a mini unit in satire and AP Lit, and I always tell my students, you know, if I have to explain the joke to you, it stops being funny. But when you get an illusion, satire based on illusion or satire something directly, if you don't have the context for it, if you don't have the background knowledge for it, you might get the low comedy that is kind of universal. You know, you've got maybe a, a dick joke or a fart joke or something in there. But the stuff that is like really biting in the satire, you won't get until you actually learn a little bit and you go back and watch. You're like, oh, wow, that's what they're really making fun of. But to Kubrick's credit, he trusts his audience to have the understanding that he needs to have. He trusts his audience to also appreciate the darkness of the film's humor. The film ends with a montage of mushroom clouds set to We'll Meet Again, which is utterly hilarious in a way that's so absurd that you can't help but crack up. And I guess that's a bit of a relief considering how dark and scary the possibility of one false move 
leading to full-scale annihilation is, and especially was back in that day, there are stories here and there of Russian or American um, nuclear operators actually stopping Armageddon because I think there's a story of one where the Russians mistook a signal for something and the the guy who literally was one of the people who was supposed to press the button was like, I can't, was like second guess the whole thing and it proved to be like really just that stopped a war because he was like, this doesn't sound like the order I'm supposed to get. And it was actually malfunctioning in a signal system or something. I, 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 would, I think I might have mentioned on a previous um, episode, but it's, it's something you can go look up. But really, it makes you consider the fragility of everything as well as just looking at all of the stuff that we looked at over the Cold War. The end of the previous segment, I mentioned the end of the the Soviet Union, and I mentioned where Russia is now under under Vladimir Putin. It certainly got enough people worried, especially when it comes to our democracy's current state. I keep coming back to the image of the Soviet flag being lowered and the Russian flag being raised as a period on the end of a triumphant sentence here, especially because quote we won, so to speak. But the problem is that the view of the world as winners and losers, as good and bad, as strictly in a binary, lacks nuance. Furthermore, it leads to people finding comfort in views that are too simple and allowing themselves to be led by those who pander through those views and especially their biases. Politics, governments, international relations, all of it is a huge mess. And when I think of Mikhail Gorbachev, I think he understood that and also understood the knot he was trying to untangle when he took office. The same way that the United States understands or understood that you couldn't just cut the knot and walk away. It's one of the few lessons they actually learned from the end of World War I. And that's why we provided aid in the 90s. We wanted to help prove that raising the flag of democracy was, in fact, a good thing. Yes, there were many more factors and many other pieces in play, especially economic ones. But the way that the end of the Cold War was presented was that the great American experiment outlasted the great Soviet experiment. Ironically, both were formed out of philosophies that were supposed to be about the power of the common person, but they took much different turns. I pointed out the ironic statements in the obituary that ran in the New York Times, because the Soviet Union was founded on a revolution of workers rising up against their bourgeois oppressors, but they found themselves in the totalitarian grip of Stalin, a government that suppressed and oppressed the very people who were supposed to be the champions. Those leaders, Stalin and Khrushchev and Brezhnev, etc., they wished to be worshipped by their people. They sent millions to imprisonment and even death for believing otherwise. Now, America prides itself on having, as Lincoln said, government of the people, by the people, for the people. But even America has struggled and often failed to keep that promise to its people. Even now, we see concerted efforts to undermine our democratic ideals, demagogues trying to upend our nation for their own gain, and a propaganda machine that helping them along the way. It makes you wonder what lessons from history we do learn other than that there's truth behind the cliché of those who do not learn from history being doomed to repeat it. It's been tough to write this episode in December 2021 because right now it seems like the world is completely falling apart in places. 
I know that's a matter of perspective in some regard, because no matter when you are, someone is always trying to tell you that the world seems like it's going to fall apart. But looking at the optimism of 30 years ago in contrast with the heartlessness that so many put on display in our public forums, along with the self-serving actions of leaders, it's hard not to be anything but pessimistic. And yet, I also think of perseverance. The people who came together and overthrew tyrants in the 20th century knew the struggle they were in for and also knew that the ideology they were fighting for put the needs and well-being of their fellow person over whatever selfish concept of winning they believed in. So as we open up the paper, turn on the television, scroll through social media each day, we can perhaps remind ourselves of how truly amazing the movements of 1989 to 1991 were and how they can be an inspiration for those of us who want to preserve what we say our country stands for and truly hold our leaders and fellow citizens to those ideals. So thanks for coming along with me these past two years and 10 episodes. While I know that I haven't covered everything there is about and in the Cold War, I have to say that I learned quite a bit and I really had fun putting this together. Thank you to my guests as well, Luke Giaconetti and Mike Bailey, for contributing to the various episodes where they were on. I really had a great time discussing all those films with you, comics, etc. Uh, and you really should check their shows out as well. If you have feedback for me, I will gladly still take it, and I will drop it into a future episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. Send me the feedback, and I will let you know when, the feed, when it goes into that episode so you can take a listen to it. And don't forget to keep listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find in the same feed you listen to this show. As always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. This has been Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and host is Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders. Feedback for the show can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F, and on Instagram at Pop Culture Affidavit. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.